Thank you for tuning into the City Church California podcast. We exist for anyone to believe in God, to become who God created them to be, and to build the church and our city. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast so that you can be updated anytime we add new content. Now let's check out the latest message from our Sunday gathering. Like Pastor Jude said, we are in a series called Hearing God. It's a study in the book of Revelation. And so what we're looking at is we're looking at the the letters that were written to the seven churches. And uh, we're looking at five of them. And we're going we're gonna to learn, we're going to grow, we're excited about it. Now, when we talk about Revelation, uh, generally there are a couple extreme approaches that maybe one of us have when we talk about Revelation. One of them is that we overemphasize the book. Like we try to get into the imagery and we're trying to diagnose and predict, like, who is the Antichrist and what is the, 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 you know, the 666 mark of the beast and when is Jesus coming back? And generally when you overemphasize it, what happens is you kind of are held captive to the headlines of the news and the, the climate of the world around you. But then there's some of us that when we hear about the book of Revelation, it just weirds us out. So we're like, pass, you know, uh, like my Bible ends in Jude. And uh, when we get to that part of my Bible reading in Revelation, I just kind of move past it because it, it's weird. There's a lot of imagery. There's a lot of things that are unclear. It's kind of scary at times. Um, I, growing up, I fell into more of that camp because um, I grew up in a Christian home in the 80s and the 90s. So that meant like we weren't allowed to watch things like Rugrats or The Simpsons, but we watched movies like, you know, Left Behind, (laughs) The Cross and the Switchblade, like just like crazy movies that it was like, guess what, if you don't accept Jesus one day, you're gonna hear a a trumpet and I'm gonna be gone, your mother's gonna be gone and you'll be there alone. It's like, okay, God, I forgive, forgive me, you know, it's like, That's how we grew up. You know, we grew up reading books called The Divine Revelation of Hell as a child. It was this beautiful poetic book of a woman who had a vision of Jesus taking her to hell, and she wrote it all down in a book for us to read. Talk about, like, have a bedtime story. Like, that's how I grew up. It's like they scared the literal hell out of you. You know what I mean? They're like, I don't want to go there. Demons are throwing spears at guys' hearts. You know what I mean? It's like, well, that's where you're going to go. You better accept Jesus, right? So I was more like the weirded out person of Revelation, right? Like I just, and I'm a logical guy in the first place. So all the imagery is kind of lost to me. I'm like, I don't care who the dragon, I don't care about a woman giving birth. Like, I don't get it, right? But when you have that approach, here's what happens. You miss out on some of the formational truth that the book does have to offer us, right? And so we get to see really there are very clear things in the book of Revelation. There's a clarity of who Jesus is. There's a clarity of his kingdom. There's a clarity of worship. And so our heart in this series, as we go through these different letters is to get some really cool understandings of who God is. You know, in this series, we're going to see that there is a a clear revelation of who Jesus is. You're going to get a great picture of him, that every letter of the church, Jesus reveals an aspect of who he is. So we see that actually in the very beginning of the, of the book, Revelations chapter 1, verse 1, and John, who wrote this, starts off this way. It's the very first couple words. It says, the revelation of Jesus Christ. The revelation of Jesus Christ. Not the revelation of the Antichrist, not the revelation of the rapture. It's a revelation of who Jesus is. So in this series, we're going to learn more and more about who Jesus is, right? This is a a series that we're going to learn more and more about worship. This is a book of worship, actually. They call it, many of them call it the Psalms of the New Testament. You see songs all over. There's worship on earth. We see worship in heaven. And we see there's a battle for our worship. 
That in all of this, there's a choice. We are going to worship the beast, Satan, or we're going to worship God. It's a book of worship. It's a book for the, even though it was written to churches in the past, it's not just written for churches in the past, and it's not written for churches in the future when a lot of this is going to go down. We believe it's for the church right now. So in this series, you're going to see that these letters written to these churches are for you and I right now for City Church California. And they're written to churches that are meant to conquer. It's not written to churches that are meant to just get by, but to actually conquer in Revelations chapter 2, verse 17, and we're going to get through the whole uh, verse later on in the message, but I want to highlight the first part. In every one of his letters, this phrase is, is here. It says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who conquers. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says, that when, to be a conquering church, we have to be a church that hears God. And in, when John wrote this, he, he, the, the word here isn't just like, I heard you. The word here is, I hear and I obey. It's the same. So to not obey what God says is to not hear God. So to hear it. So my wife, Gabrielle, and I, we are, we are entering, we've entered into a, a cool phase in our marriage, uh, which is I at times don't hear what she's telling me. And I don't mean metaphoric, metaphorically, I mean literally, I don't hear what she's saying. Like, I don't know if her pitch has changed in her voice, but generally our conversations goes, Gabby says something, huh? Gabby says something, what? Gabby says something, well, Michael, do you hear me? It's incredible, it's awesome. I just, I find it hilarious, she finds it enraging. Um, <laughs> But she'll many times say, Michael, are you hearing me? Why? Because she's told me to do something and I did not hear. So I'm not doing it. So the question is, so when God says, hey, I want you to hear, he's saying, I want you to hear and obey what I'm saying. And in doing that, you are a conquering church. A conquering church is a church that hears God and obeys God. Which can mess with our Western culture mind because I think a conquering church is a church that ends up on top all the time. Like, we're proven right. Like, our political party wins the election cycle. Like, when we watch movies, if the protagonist doesn't win at the end, what have I just done for the last two, minutes, the last two hours of my life? God says, listen, the conquering church is one that's obedient to what I said. So even in death, you're a conquering church because you did not disobey what I told you to do. Right? So it's a conquering church. And so what we're going to look at today is in this letter is we're going to look at the, uh, the ch uh, letter written to the church in Pergamum, and we're going to allow what the Spirit has to say, God, may the Spirit may speak to us, right? And may we hear it, and may we be obedient to it. So we're going to read together in Revelations chapter 2, we're going to read the entire uh, letter to this particular church, Pergamum, and then after that, we're going to go line by line, and we're just going to have some fun. It's going to be really good. So let's start off here, cha uh, chapter 2, verse 12. It says, and to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. Like, you know you're in a messed up place when Jesus is like, yeah, the devil's got a three-bedroom, two-bath where you live. Right? But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak how to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual morality. So also you have some who hold the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. 
If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Almost done. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we come and we acknowledge you in this place. I don't just make room for you. I give you the room. This is your room. This is where I end and this is where you begin. May you bring revelation and understanding. And may we not just hear with our ears, but may we obey what you are telling us, Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Jesus starts this letter with a revelation of who he is. He's establishing his authority to be able to speak into this church. Because he goes in verse 12, it says, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Why that is so important? Because in that culture, only Caesar and a few governors, and this one governor in Pergamum would have this power, they had what was called the power of the sword. And it was represented by a double-edged sword. And what that meant was they had the power of life and death. That when you were held on trial, they could decide, because they had the power of the sword, either to grant you life and you are innocent, or to declare you guilty and have you killed. And so literally, the, the governor in Pergamum, he actually, when he would go through the city, he would have someone who would hold a giant two-edged sword in front of him as he walked, reminding the people, I actually have power over you to declare life or death. So Jesus flexes a little bit here. He says, Caesar does not have power over life and death. I have the power of life. I hold the two-edged sword. I defeated death in the grave. I am the one who controls life, not Caesar. So because of that and because of who I am, I can't speak into your situation. You don't need to fear Caesar. You don't need to fear your governor. I have the double-edged sword. Then he goes on and he goes, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. My goodness, what makes this place so crazy? It's where Satan dwells. Pergamum, it was this, it was a very important city uh, in Asia Minor. At one point, it was the capital until Ephesus became the capital. It was very spiritual. It was very pagan. And so in this city, there was this Acropolis which was this really high hill point above the city. And on this massive Acropolis of hill, there would be all these temples and altars to these different types of gods. So when you grew up in Pergamum, you go out your door in the morning with your coffee and you would look up into the hills and you would see this beautiful, all these incredible temples and altars built to these different gods that would demand and expect you to worship them. Some of the gods that we had there, and I, and I, I listed a few just so you can get a feel. One was Athena. She had a temple. She was the goddess of war and wisdom. And it was so if you needed wisdom, you would go and you would sacrifice to her. And it was said of Athena that she had wisdom that led to life. Then you had Zeus. You know Zeus? You know the guy, the thunderbolt, right? That guy? That guy, he, had, he didn't have a temple. He had an altar, this massive altar that was four stories high. And 24-7 sacrifices would be offered on the altar to Zeus. And you would see smoke all throughout the day going up into heaven from these things. And it, it, on the altar, it depicted this great battle that Zeus would lead against the gods and become victorious. And he was known as the god of gods. He was known as Zeus the savior. Then you had Dionysius. He was the god of wine, theater, and the party. Like if you wanted pleasure, you wanted to go to Vegas, that was your temple for you, Right? He was also known as the patron deity of the arts. So right next to his temple was this giant 10,000 seat uh, amphitheater where you would go and you would watch plays and you would watch things, performances. 
And it was said of the, of the time there that in the theater, it was known to be able to push the envelope of what was accepted culturally there. So if you wanted to take something was, that was taboo and you wanted to make it mainstream, you put it into the theater. And as people watched it, they would be entertained and expect that this is where culture was going. Kind of sounds familiar, right? They actually do have a lot in common with this church. We think, well, we have nothing in common. They're completely, they're wearing togas. What I mean, what are we, you know? No, man, they are dealing with the same type of pressure. Nothing new under the sun. So we've got Dionysius, we've got Demeter. She was the goddess of agricultural and grain and you would go to her for good crops and she was known, you would want to pray this prayer, God, uh, give me my daily bread. That's how you would pray to her. Then you had Asclepius, which he was the god uh, of medicine and healing. And he was the one that's most famous. This area was most famous for. He was known to have a staff with a snake wrapped around it. It's where our medical, our, the doctor, the sign in medicine is where we get this symbol. It's from Asclepius. And so not only was it a temple for him to be worshipped, it was actually the most comprehensive medical facility in all of the area. Think like Mayo Clinic, right? So there was cutting edge technology in medicine there, but it was very pagan and very spiritual. Because the doctors were, were the priests of Asclepius. And it was said that they were empowered by the God to actually heal you. And so they would actually use mod, the, their modern medicine to try to do that. But if that didn't work, then they would turn to spiritual things. And they would bring in drugs to, to create hallucinations and different like mind, uh, mind control things that would try to help you. And if that didn't work, they had this dark tunnel and they would put you there and they would lay you down overnight and they would release non-venomous snakes. And it would be said that if one of them crawled over you, you would be healed. But in order to use the clinic, you had to worship Asclepius. So figure you are a Christian and you believe in Jesus and your son is sick with a fever and there's a fever that's going around town right now that if you don't get it treated in the, on the seventh day, they die and you're on day three. But the only way you can use that hospital is if you go and worship the God. Lastly, we've got the cult of the emperor. It's the temple worship to Caesar. There were temples that when you became a Caesar, you were, given, you were able to build a temple of worship to you in one city and it's where you would be worshiped. And uh, the very first Caesar to do this was Caesar Augustus. And he built the first temple in Pergamum. Caesar Augustus was the Caesar when Jesus was born. And it was said of Caesar Augustus that he was actually the son of God, that he was both God and man, and that he was supposed to bring a message of peace and prosperity. And some transcripts say through the remission of sins. And you would worship Caesar. And if you didn't worship Caesar, it would limit your ability to buy, to sell, and to trade. So I'm saying all this because I want you to capture a picture of what it's like to live in this type of city, right? So why is this called the city of Satan? It, I don't think it's called it because there's a specific throne or there wasn't a temple made to Satan, right? There wasn't this altar like Zeus. If you, you know, if you put the numbers to the letters and you divide it by six, you get six, six, six. Like, that's not it. I think what it is, is the city was full of opportunities to divide, divide and, and to take worship from God and to something else. Because remember, Revelation is a battle for my worship. And Satan just wants you to not worship God. He wants you to worship other things. And so I'm in this city where Satan lives, where there's all these opportunities for me to worship something or someone else outside of God. And you have to understand that the worship of the gods, the civic particip participation of it, was not encouraged. It was demanded. And to not worship the gods was actually seen as treason. 
See, the Christians back then, they were not persecuted for their faith in Jesus. They were persecuted for their exclusive faith in Jesus. See, because everything that they're saying about those other gods you believe and know is true about your God. I don't need to go to a goddess to give me wisdom for a way of life. I have a God who says I am the way, the truth, and the life. I don't need to go to Zeus, the God of gods, the Savior. No, I have the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ. And in Revelation 19, it says on his robe and his leg is written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And I don't need to go to a temple to experience pleasure. I have a God who in Psalm 16 says, at my right hand are pleasures forevermore. And I don't need to go to a God of grain because Jesus taught me to pray to the Father, give me this day my daily bread. And I don't need to go to a God to sacrifice and worship in order that I would be healed. I had a God who sacrificed himself so that I could be healed. And I won't worship Caesar because he wasn't the son of God. Jesus Christ was the son of God. He was man and he was and God. And he died to bring a message of peace and prosperity through the remission of sins. So you have this pressure to feel it. And what Jesus is doing at first, he's commending the church. He's saying, hey, based on all this pressure that you're experiencing, you have held fast to my name and you haven't denied my faith. Even when it, the persecution turned to death. He mentions Antipas, them saying he was a leader of the church, one of the leaders of the church. He had, they had him killed, and yet you still didn't deny me. Well done. And yet, Jesus has a rebuke for this church. And what you're going to see is the rebuke is not because of their response from the pressure that they experience on the outside. It's the compromise that they allowed to come in on the inside. He goes on, he says, but I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak how to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual morality. So also some have hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. He begins to talk about a moment in the history of the children of Israel. And if you grew up and you knew your, your history, you would know of the story of Balaam and Balak. It's found in Numbers the Old Testament chapters 22 to 25 in chapter 31. God's people, the children of Israel, are out of Egypt. They're in the wilderness. They're on their way to the promised land, and they come across the kingdom of the Moabites. And the king, Balak, wants to stop them. So the first way he tries to stop them is he hires this prophet Balaam to come and curse God's people. So he has them go on these different mountains, but Balaam says, I will, not say what, what only, I will only say what God tells me to say. And he's like, well, just try to curse him. So multiple times he tries to curse them, but every time Balaam goes to curse them, he ends up blessing God's people. So God's people are blessed. But then Balaam shows Balak how to trip up God's people. He says, what you're going to do is you're going to, have, you're going to give some of your women into marriage to the sons of Israel. And you're not going to tell them to stop worshiping Yahweh. You're simply going to ask them to begin to also worship some of your gods, specifically Baal. And in that worship would be sexual, it was a highly sexualized worship. So there would be a sexual morale. That's why Jesus mentions it. That would be a part of the worship of this God. And then the, eating the food sacrificed to idols. It's not so much about the food. It was that it was part of the worship. And in doing so, he brought compromise into God's people and he tripped them up. It's this theme that you're going to see in the revelations, but you see throughout all scripture. God's people cannot be cursed from without, but they can be compromised from within. So what he's telling him, when he, so mentioning that story, he's saying this to the people. He says, listen, most of you have not gone back to exclusively worshiping the gods. 
you hold fast to me, but some of you, you're holding fast to me, but you're holding fast to some of the other worships in your culture again. You're beginning to integrate some of the practices and the approaches of your world also into your relationship with me. And you're letting compromise in. You're living a Jesus plus life. Jesus plus this worship to this God. Jesus plus this practice of worship to that God. And it's opened you up for compromise. And you will not be overcome, church, through what they're trying to do to you and and kill you. But where you will be overcome is if you allow that compromise to come in. Some would say we in California live in the state where Satan dwells. (laughs) Anybody had a grandma and aunt or mom send you an article about how jacked up your state is? <laughs> Through Facebook, obviously. It's like, I haven't checked my Facebook in like 10 years, but okay, cool. We'll take a look at it. Oh, great. Mima sent me like five things. Awesome. California is no different than any other state. In that there are obviously opportunities and things that try to divert my worship from God. And we have gods today. We have idols today. Now, they're not gods necessarily made of stone and wood, but they are man-made. And idols and gods, they are things, they are people or things in our life that we look to to give us only that which God can give us. That's what makes something an idol or a god. And those gods do require sacrifices from us. We just give them different names. It's not Asclepius, which, you know, sounds like a character out of like the Eddie Murphy movies. No, Asclepius, 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 you know. Hercules, Hercules, you know. It's not Asclepius, it's not, you know, it's not Caesar, but it's, it's God's like love, God's like success, God's like influence, God's like money, God's like um, relationships, drugs can be that. Why? Because we're looking those to do something that only God can do. So I, I think love is going to completely love this, a relationship with someone is going to make me whole and it requires a sacrifice. So I give of myself sexually to individuals, hoping that in doing that, I will discover love. And I don't really don't know if it's going to work or not, but that's how it was back in that day too. You were never really sure if the gods accepted your sacrifice or not. So you would sacrifice, say you would sacrifice to the God of, of grain and the goddess of grain, and you would sacrifice and maybe uh, you would have a good crop that year. So your sacrifice might have, must have been accepted. But next year you come and you do the same thing again. But this time uh, what happened, there was a famine. And so I must have made the gods mad and I don't know why. So m- maybe more is required of my sacrifice. So that's what we do, right? Right? I didn't find love here, so I'm going to give more of myself to this person. Success is a God, right? That that's going to be what makes me whole, complete. That's what I need to go for. So I lay on the altar my health, my family, my marriage, my children to give to this thing, hoping that in all this sacrifice, I'll have a good sales quarter. Right? So we have gods. We're, we're surrounded by, and, and, and for some of us, the God is it's a substance. It's something that numbs us. Because of the pain and trauma we've experienced, we think the only answer, the only way to get through it is to numb it. And so this, this drug, this substance, maybe it's even sex, we do it, we partake in it, so it just numbs us and gets us through it. It becomes a god. So we have gods. We have opportunities for things to divert our worship. And so church, what God is speaking to us is say, hey, listen, I know you haven't gone back to all out exclusively turning your back on me. But I think some of us, we have a way, we have a hand on Jesus and we have a hand on some of the things of the culture of this world. And the ways of the world are uh, opposite of the way Jesus instructs us to live. Some of us, I wonder if we are living a Jesus plus life. Jesus 
plus the way I'm going to get influence that's cost my integrity and my name and my word because I just tried to get it. Jesus plus. See, Jesus' ways, they are countercultural to the ways of the world. So when I follow Jesus, I look opposite of the way the world looks around me. But when I begin to integrate some of the ways of the world back into my life, I start, I start living like the world again. Then I start looking like the world again. And if I start looking like the world again, then what do I have to offer? My life looks no different than the one right next to me. The word, um, the word Balaam translated means the devourer of people. And Nicolaitan, which I don't mention a lot of, it's in scripture, but Pastor Jake talked about it last week. Their, their teaching was pretty much in essence this, hey, God only really cares about uh, you having salvation. He really doesn't care about the way you live. Like they would say things, they had this, this teaching, would go, hey, God told me that he gets it. Like you're in a bad city. So it's okay if you like have to worship this God. So the Nicolaitans, they're, they're, uh, the, that name translated means the, the conqueror of people. It's where you actually get the word Nike. I know, I know. Sell it all right now. <laughs> the mark of the beast, it's Nike. There you go. You're welcome. <laughs> go to Reebok. You know, that means this in Greek. It's horrible. You know? God says you're not going to be overcome by the, the curses and the pressure coming on the outside. Because God's people can't be cursed. He says, but my people will be able to be conquered and devoured if they allow compromise to come inside. I think sometimes we, we can put an overemphasis on the pressure that we feel on the outside. I think we should know it. It's there, right? There is, like never before, there's a pressure and there is a level of persecution that's coming on in the church in America. But I think sometimes we put too much pressure on that and not enough on what, maybe what we've allowed to come on the inside of my life, of the church I dwell in. So God, he, his response, verse 16 he says, therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. And the sword, they would probably get the reference of the sword. Uh, Paul wrote a letter to the church of Ephesus, which was in Asia Minor. It spoke about the word of God as a sword, like a sword. So there's a good chance that that letter circulated that region. So when they would have heard the sword, they would be thinking God's word. But also in Hebrews chapter four, this is what it says about the word of God. It says, for the word of God is alive and powerful. It is sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword. Cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. And it exposes our inmost thoughts and desires. So the word of God is meant to instruct us on how to live the way God has called us to live. But it also reveals the areas of compromise in my life. Like a two-edged sword begins to cut away the, different, the, the thoughts and the desires that are not of God and expose and reveal where I have allowed compromise to come into my life. It says, therefore, repent. You know, I think, how, do, how does compromise come in? Um, I think a couple ways. One is, uh, we don't think compromise matters to God. It's more that Nicolaitan approach. Like, it doesn't really matter. Look, I live in California. Like, look, I grew up in a jacked up home. Like, I, you know, like it is what it is, right? And we think it just doesn't matter to God. But what we're seeing is that it matters to God. But I think the other reason why sometimes we let compromise in is because we don't know that what we're doing is wrong. Because we don't know our word. We haven't allowed scripture to begin to renew our minds and we get on the inside of us. 
And the problem is, is when you don't know the truth, the word of God, you look to substitute it by looking to other people to define what truth is for you. The problem with that is, is the devil and culture does such a great job crafting truths that it actually sounds truth if it not held up to the word of God. It's so poetic and beautiful and inclusive and I hear it and I go, my God, how could that not be true? Like I would be, I would be a horrible person if I didn't believe that. But then when you hold it up to scripture and like a, like a two-edged sword, it begins to kind of go, nope, that's not of me. Nope, that's not who you are. Nope, that's not how I've called you to live. Nope, that's not how I see that. I see it this way. All of a sudden, it's a lie. We've got to know the truth. Otherwise, it doesn't matter. What's powerful about a lie is it still impacts your life, whether it's a lie or not. So I know the truth, so I don't allow compromise to come into my life. And I, but here's what I love about Jesus. I love his response. Do you notice he doesn't lead with, yo, I'm bringing the sword. Look out, right? He doesn't lead with that. He leads with repent. He's like, repent so that I don't have to come. Repent. The word repent um, in the Greek means to like change your mind about something, to change the way you think. Because when, when I change the way I think, it changes the way I act. Actually, and this is not in the notes, but it came to Romans 12 too, actually says this. It says, to not copy the behaviors and customs of this world, but let God transform you by changing the way you think. To change the way we think about certain ways. We conduct ourselves, the way we treat people, the way we talk to people, the way we conduct business, the way we treat our spouses, the way we raise our children, the, way, the, the things that we look at when no one else is around. The word repent in Hebrew is pretty cool too. It means to um, return. It, it, the picture is returning to the path. That in, in life, there are two paths. There's the path that God has laid out for me and the path of everybody else. And at different points and times in my life, I have allowed compromise to come in. I've looked like the world and I get off path. Repentance is I realize I have done it. I repent. I turn around. I walk back to the path that God has for me and I begin to change. I change the way I think about it. I let the word of God renew my mind about that area of my life. I begin to get accountability in people who are going God's path, like in a city group, and I walk that path with them. I put safeguards on my life so I don't veer off again. And that is repentance. And the thing you have to understand about repentance is God loves repentance. He loves repentance. He loves it because he understands that though I am the righteousness of God because of Jesus Christ, I'm still human and I have some brokenness. Though I'm still on my path and I'm still having Christ formed in me, I'm surrounded by a culture that's trying to deform me. And so Jesus says, I understand that so that when you do get off track, repent and come back to the path. That's why he says, I get it. You live in the city where Satan lives. There's pressure everywhere. And some of you have gotten a little bit of compromise on the inside. So know what? Repent. Come back to the path. Change the way you think and keep moving forward. I'll ask the keys to come up. There's this uh, rabbinical story that is told where a rabbi goes to his disciples and he goes, hey, listen, don't forget, repent the day before you die. And they're like, teacher, we don't know when we're going to die. And he said, exactly. Repentance is a daily practice where I come before God and I simply say, God, Holy Spirit, where are the areas of my life where I've allowed compromise in? 
where have I, David prayed it. He said, search my heart, God, and know me. See if there's anything offensive on the inside of me. Every day I come, God, let your word, like a double-edged sword, come and cut the things that aren't supposed to be there. And Holy Spirit, when you reveal it to me, I will repent. The scripture says that God disciplines those he loves. So he brings this to our attention so that we repent and return to the path that he has for us. Says he who has ears to hear, let him hear what the spirit is saying to the churches. You will not be cursed from without. You will only be compromised from within. So repent, come back to me. He ends with, to the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. That's a shout out back to, again, God's people in the desert. And while they were in the wilderness every day, God would provide manna for them to eat. And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. There's a lot of debate on what this this means. Some say that the manna is this picture of the meal that we will have in heaven. Then in the end, there is the feast of the lamb after Jesus has come back and God has made everything right. There's something to look forward to, a feast with God, our father. The white stone meant different things in that culture. Uh, If you were um, on trial, if you were found guilty, you were given a black stone, but if you were found innocent, you were given a white one. If the governor would have a big event, he would hand out white stones to the population and it was your ticket to enter into that event. If you were, they had Olympic type games. And so if if you were victorious in one of the Olympic games, you were given a white stone with your name on it and represented victory. It was a change and shift of your identity of how people saw you. Jesus says that the one who hears will conquer. You have something to look forward to. You have this meal, this feast that you will someday have with your father. And because of what Jesus Christ did, you are not declared uh, guilty anymore. You are declared innocent because Jesus Christ paid the price for your sins. And you have entrance into heaven. And you have a different name with a different identity. And you are the victorious And Satan does not have power over the life and death. I am the one who holds the double-edged sword and I can make this declaration over your life. And I declare life. I declare innocence. I declare righteousness. I declare victor. We only write that as before we close and we pray that we have a moment we'd partake of the Lord's supper together and the representation of the manna and the stone, the body of Christ, the blood of you. So uh, if you're in the front seat, they were on your chairs, but now in these new fancy chairs, it's in front of you on the left-hand side, a little cup holder where your communion cup is. It's the Rolls Royce of chairs, people. We spared no experience. Well, you, I mean, you gave, the Build Together offering helped be a part of this. So, you know, you participate. This is, but let's get this out. In the manna, the, the body of Christ, the bread that it represents, his body was broken so that we would be healed. And I can believe and pray for not, holistic healing, not just in my body, but in my mind, my soul. Jesus took stripes on his back. So before he went to the cross, Jesus had a meal with his disciples and he had the bread and he had the wine. And 
He said this about the bread. He said, this bread is the, represents my body, which will be broken for you. When you take this, remember what I did for you. So while we have the bread, let's, I like to break it because of that. And let's take it together. And he took the wine and he said, this cup rep represents a new covenant between God and his people, a covenant sealed in my blood. It represents that. It's like a, the white stone. Because of what he did, I have a new identity. I have a, I have a new destination. It's called heaven. I'm, seen, I'm, I'm not guilty. I'm innocent because of what Jesus Christ did for you and for me. So let's take it together. Would you stand with me this morning? And if you don't mind, we'll just have, let's gonna have a moment. We're just gonna close our eyes. I have, I have two prayer points I wanna pray for. First one is this. For those of us in the room that you've already made the decision to believe in Jesus, you're on the path. And you're doing a great job. You haven't conformed to some of the outward pressure that has tried to outright get you to deny and turn your back on what you believe. But for some of us, we have allowed some compromise to come on the inside. What I just want to give a moment in space to is I want to allow the Holy Spirit to reveal that to you. Not me. I could come up with ways where compromise comes in, but I feel like the Holy Spirit's like, no, 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 that's my job. So right now, I'm just going to pray and then I'm going to give a moment where it's just quiet. And we're going to believe that after I pray, the Holy Spirit's just going to Reveal if there is anything in my life where there would be some compromise. Holy Spirit, I invite you in right now, sir. God, like a double-edged sword, come search us right now in this moment. Know us. Reveal any area of compromise that we have allowed to come on the inside. Speak, Holy Spirit. We're listening.
as the Holy Spirit just begins, and you, and you feel, you feel it, you feel the conviction, it comes out, just practice what Jesus said to do. Repent. Ask for forgiveness. Change the way you think about it. Invite the Holy Spirit. I, I pray this a lot when I'm dealing with something, I say, God, you know how I think about it, and I don't, I'm struggling to change that, so change the way I think about it then, Holy Spirit. Pray that, say, God, change my mind and how I think about that area. forgive us of our compromise forgive us of the small things that we have allowed to creep back into our walk with you I thank you that right now in this moment Holy Spirit you're changing the way we think about things you're doing something supernatural right now on the inside of us God, you're exposing the lies that some of us have built our life on. And you're bringing truth right now. The light of the word of God, like a double-edged sword, come and cut away the lies of the enemy that have led us off the path. May your word that is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path, may like ever before shine so bright in front of us. we've allowed compromise to enter our church through us forgive us if we've compromised how we treat some of the people in this house or how we talk to them or handle them forgive us if we've spoken of authority in ways that are the way the world speaks of authority but not the way you've told us to speak of authority forgive us we be a church in California that does not have compromise on the inside, but one that is full of truth, love, where we have a firm grasp on you, Jesus. May we be a church that hears and obeys. May we be a church that conquers. Let me encourage you. Sometimes compromise is easy because it seems like it's the fastest, faster way to get where you want to go. So it leads you to compromise to get there. I get it. Following Jesus sometimes doesn't make sense in the mind. But it is the way to go. Because with Jesus, how he ends the thing is it's all about at the end what is said of you who you are what you've accomplished what you have produced who you have impacted that road yeah it's narrow but the Holy Spirit is with you 
And people around you will say, well, that's not how you get that success. That's not how you find love. That's, that's not how you get influence. That's not how you're gonna make money. That, no, you gotta do it this way. You've gotta treat people this way. You've gotta manipulate the, your words. You've gotta manipulate people. You've gotta give this up. And you will know now that that is a lie. In fact, the Holy Spirit will give you a distaste for it. I pray right now that we wouldn't even be attractive to us, God. That the ways of this world would be offensive. It wouldn't even be attractive. We would want nothing to do with the way. We will love you, the people, but the way of it, we will not want it. That there will, that now, right now, Holy Spirit, I pray a breaking off of this attractiveness to it, this taste for it. No, that, that would change. It would, the taste, the desire, the way we see it, it's changing right now. The way we see ourselves, the way we see marriage, the way we see purity, success, influence, it's breaking right now that we would only have a desire for the ways of God. The manna you provide, the ways of this world, I pray right now, we will no longer desire that. Our taste has changed in Jesus' name. tells you to do no matter what quote unquote Caesar tells you was right or wrong you won't listen anymore you will have ears to hear what only God says and you have tasted and seen that God is good and has ruined you for anything else so now I declare your marriage is strong your mind is strong you are set free you are whole you are healed Every day God will provide you your daily bread. Every day he will lead you down the path of life. He will heal you. He will restore you. You will experience pleasure and joy and contentment. You are on the path. Before we dismiss, I offer one more invitation. And that's simply for those of us, you gotta get on the path first right? You got to get on first before you can start walking it. And you can't get on it until you make this decision to make Jesus the Lord of your life. Like the people in Pergamum grew up with this understanding of this is what life looked like. Then there would be this message of Jesus. And the response was repent, believe, and be baptized. So for some of I offer this invitation and then I'm gonna lead you in a prayer and that is to believe in Jesus, to abandon the gods of your past and of your family and of this, of this culture and to declare your allegiance to God, right? The Bible says when you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you are saved. Like that you are on the path, right? So that makes the decision that you have to make. No one can make it for you, uh, but you have to make it. But Jesus died on the cross for you. He paid the price for your sins. He, he made a way so you could get on the path without Jesus. I couldn't even get on the path. I didn't want to get on the path. But when Jesus made 
made, the, made, made that sacrifice, all of a sudden it opened up the door. So now I have a decision to make. I accept it, I believe it, I repent of my sins, and I get on it. So in this house, if there's anybody here or on with us online, and you have never made a decision to believe in Jesus, and you wanna get on the path, here's what I'm gonna ask. I'm gonna ask you simply to raise your hand and when I count the three. And all I wanna do, why I wanna do that? One, I wanna know who it is, because I wanna know who I'm praying for. And I wanna, I wanna be able to look at you and pray with you about this, this prayer. Two, man, Jesus says, hey, listen, you, you, you should be able to acknowledge me in front of people, right? That this life isn't a life that's meant to live coverted and privately. It's one that's meant to be declared that I follow Jesus. It's not a declaration of being perfect. It's a declaration of being, hey, I was broken, but Jesus saved me and now I wanna believe. So if you wanna be me to help me lead you in this prayer, I'm gonna count to three. I want you to raise your hand. One, that's me. I wanna make a decision to get back on the path. Two, I'm ready to repent and make Jesus the Lord of my life. Three, would you please raise your hand for me as I just look. Anyone in this room? Thank you for that hand, I appreciate you. Yeah, anyone else? Come on. So good. Let's pray. Everybody, close your eyes. If you raised your hand, I'm gonna give you words to say, but it's, I'm just giving you words of what you're feeling on the inside. And a miracle is gonna take place in your heart and God's gonna do something supernatural. He can give you a new, he can give you a white stone with a new name, a new identity. You're gonna be declared innocent. You're victorious now. You're no longer gonna be someone who's overcome by the world. You're actually gonna be able to overcome the world because of what's gonna happen on the inside of you right now. Every head bowed close. Can y'all church, can we repeat this after me? Say, thank you, God, for Jesus. I believe that he is your son. Forgive me, God, of my sins. I make you the Lord of my life. In Jesus' name, amen. Come on, let's give God glory for that right now. We so appreciate you spending time with us. If you'd like to invest into what God is doing through City Church California, you can go to our website, citychurchca.com, and click Give. Thanks again, and we hope to see you at one of our campuses this Sunday.